Welcome back to the ICU Life and Recovery Podcast. My name is Mark and I am the host. And today's episode, it was meant to be one episode, but we're going to split it into two because the discussion I had with Dr. Morgan was was quite lengthy and I felt that it would be best done justice as two separate episodes. So in this first episode, we'll talk about um, ICU books and experience, the effect that COVID has had on ICU and ICU culture. Uh, we'll talk a, a bit about Dr. Morgan's motivations for writing his book, Critical. We'll speak about my favourite topic, ICU delirium, as well as humanising uh, of ICU care, and also cover uh, patient involvement in research and education as well as the importance of bereavement support and psychological support for the families. I really think this is a great episode and I really hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Hi, I just wanted to add that in this episode and the next episode, there seems to have been something strange has happened to my voice during recording. It seems to be to do with Zoom and I'm not entirely sure what's happened. So my voice sounds a lot deeper. Um, I hope the problem will be solved for the next recording session and I hope that it doesn't distract you too much but uh, I thought I would tell you so you kind of understand the fact that my voice sounds very different. Uh, Thanks. Hi, I'm here with Matt today. If Matt, if you want to tell us all about yourself. Yeah, hi everybody. My name is Matt Morgan. I work as an intensive care consultant in Cardiff. I'm also involved in some research and I dipped my toe into the world of publishing by writing a book about intensive care called Critical last year. Anybody that has listened last time will have a sort of format and that was my plan to sort of keep that format but I've been listening to Dr Morgan's book in the audio form which I find is quite useful for people like me that can't concentrate and read a book cover to cover anymore. It's just I can't do it. I like the the kind of function and, and obviously being read by yourself is quite a useful thing. Your intonation of it, I, I found that quite good. Unfortunately, I've not, I've not managed to finish it, um, but uh, I was really, I'm really enjoying it just now. Um, I'm going to ask some questions. If you want to ask me questions, then that's great. And we can kind of roll with it. So the first one I had was what made you write critical? What was your kind of driving purpose behind that? Well, The truth is, it was probably two things that made me write it. Uh, One was the fact that I'd spent a decade previously writing boring academic papers in academic journals that only a handful of people would ever read. I'd spent a decade talking at conferences where the people in the audience would often know the answers to the questions better than me, actually. And yet I'd forgotten about the most important person in intensive care which you know isn't the nurse the physio the doctor the secretary it, it's the patient the patient and the family at the center and I was at a conference actually doing much of these activities and in the bar afterwards over a pint of Guinness which is how all good stories start of course I was speaking to somebody who lived locally who said why are you here this was in Dublin. Why are you here in Dublin? I said, I'm at a conference. What conference is it? It's a medical conference. Oh, what do you do? I said, I'm an intensive care doctor. And they looked at me and said, 
what's that? <laughs> and it was at that point, it kind of struck me that this 10 year period I'd spent doing these other things, you know, I should really think about the public, the dad, the mum, the family, the patient at the center. Now, here we are in 2020, and I think everybody knows what intensive care is now, thanks uh, to COVID, sadly. But that really was one driving purpose. And the other driving purpose was a particular person, a particular patient, who was called Chris. Um, he's, in, he's in the book. He's a young guy who had a severe infection whilst traveling abroad in, in Africa. And meeting him when he was critically ill in Cardiff and meeting his family a decade later was really impactful. And a lot of the book really was molded around the case of Chris, trying to weave science, human stories, as well as the logistics of care in a way that the public can understand. Yeah, so obviously Chris was the case that resonated with me and that obviously I had uh, what we believe was avian flu that developed into sepsis that then produced ARDS. So I, I felt sort of there was a lot of kind of similarities there. And surprisingly, that wasn't the case that kind of I found hardest to, to listen to. Um, it, it's very strange in that, like, I can listen to myself or, well, I can't listen to myself because I hate hearing myself talk, but I can read my own case, my own story and my own history, and it has no effect on me, really. But even a, a slight tale of someone else, and I'm like... Um, this is a bit uncomfortable now it's it's a very a very strange one to me that that doesn't seem to make sense and that you would think the personal trauma or things that are close to what has happened to you would be the things that most affect you but it didn't seem to be for me but so you, you touched on on covid you know that's the the kind of the big topic of the year the year ruiner, the holiday canceller, the visiting ender. Do you think with the sort of influx of awareness through through COVID and the forces and changing of how things are done in the hospital in general, but also in ICU, do you think that will be a sort of legacy going forward? Will things change on the back of this? I hope so in many ways. Of course, it would be brilliant if that wasn't needed at all. But listening to news reports over the last few months the word ventilator the word intensive care the word critical illness and importantly factors such as family involvement breaking bad news all those issues are being spoken about daily pretty much and i've always thought that you know the worst time to try and explain to people the complexity of intensive care how critical illness can affect you how you have to think about what intensive care should as well as can do. You know, the worst time to do that is when you've got a family member or yourself is critically ill. You know, that's, a, that's an awful time to try and integrate that knowledge. You know, the best time is when the seas are calm, but it's not a kind of topic which is brought up over you know, the Christmas table or when families meet up. What COVID has done, I hope, is to spur those conversations on a little. Now, I wrote a, a letter early in the pandemic, which was called a letter from ICU. And I wrote that 
not for anyone else other than for my family, really. My parents are elderly and my brother-in-law has got a severe ongoing chronic illness and he's in that at-risk category. And I really wrote it to them to reassure them about what may happen if they'd become ill. And, you know, that letter and other things prompted a lot of people to think about the future and what may happen and have those discussions, I hope, with loved ones and families. So I guess in answer to your question, I hope it changes things. Along with the explosion of medical memoirs, there's, there's some fantastic books about critical illness out there, some written by people with lived experience, uh, like In Shock, for example, uh, others written by uh, professionals there, nursing staff and other doctors, Efrabi's Seven Signs of Life is a beautiful book as well. So I hope you know, all these things together will will help. The other two books that you, you noted there, I actually have both of them. In Shock is Dr. Odyssey's book, isn't it? Yeah. So I found that that was quite good in that it was someone talking from both sides of the of the argument and that she is an intensive care physician and she was an intensive care patient and that is the golden goose and that she actually has a full understanding of the situation which I think that I don't want MD to be in intensive care but her having been in intensive care will not only have impacted her own practice of medicine but everyone that she trains thereafter that and you can stop humming now are, are the two books that I've actually managed to complete um, in a in a kind of total of like three years of reading. But yeah, they were they were very good, and I've I've got sidetracked, which is my 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 trouble sometimes. But I, I think you're right, and you know when people who work in those fields flip into being the other side of the fence, you know that can be that can bring as much understanding as a decade or more work in there. And it's something which nobody wishes, but it can be really important to reflect on. You know, my, my brother-in-law was critically ill and in intensive care for many months with a, a somewhat mystery neurological illness. And he's been left with lots of issues as a result of it. And I always remember going to visit him in intensive care when he was critically ill on a breathing machine uh, in a coma. Uh, with infection and with sepsis to some extent and the things I thought I would care about are things like the settings on the ventilator or you know, what position he was in what drugs are on his chart can I peer over and have a sneaky look at the ICU chart and that's what I was preparing myself for but actually the moment I went through the doors and put some gel on my hands the things I cared about actually were the fact that the nurse at the bedside knew his name, the fact that he was he was clean and and in his bed and looked comfortable and wasn't agitated and wasn't in any discomfort. It was the fact that the posters on the wall weren't out of date and peeling off. It was those non-medical bits which I actually cared about, those bits of humanity. Uh, and that wasn't a conscious thing. My brain just kind of flicked. So for somebody who's also been through that experience, you know, that's just me as an outsider looking in. It must be even more profound, actually. 
Yeah, so you sort of brought about a kind of discussion of humanization there. So I'm going to flip to what everyone knows is my is my favourite topic and what I seem to always be asked to, to talk about is uh, ICU delirium. So this is, is a topic that's quite close to my heart. I initially started sort of being a, a volunteer for post-ICU clinic within my local trust, but I quickly got pivoted into delirium and it's it was a very under spoken about problem particularly when i started talking about it and then in scotland the sign guideline was published and that was i always refer to it as the game changer because it it set out this is what you should be doing and it meant that you know if you're in edinburgh where, where a lot of the experts in delirium are you are probably receiving quite high quality delirium care anyway but if you were somewhere else maybe you weren't because they didn't really they weren't educated about it or whatever and um, that seemed to be something that was missing delirium seemed to be missing in education not used as a word on wards pleasantly confused which it, to this day is still the most hated phrase i ever see in my life because it's not pleasant and i'm not confused i'm terrified Obviously, you spoke about brother's situation on the things round about in ICU that were that were important to you, that were the basis of sort of humanising his care. As a physician, what do you think is sort of, not absent per se, but what, what's missing in the sort of humanising in ICU puzzle? Because I, I can think of a few things, but I would like to hear what, what you think. Well, the first thing to say is if anybody's in any doubt about the importance of delirium for patients, then go back and listen to episode one of, of this podcast where you, Mark, describe in kind of realistic, terrifying detail uh, about your own experiences. And it's only really hearing those firsthand that I think us working there can appreciate the importance of that, actually. As somebody who works locally uh, in Cardiff has recently done an art exhibition in fact of patients experiences of delirium through the medium of art and that equally is you know, such a visceral impactful thing uh, to look at and we've had delirium leads locally Dr Julie Highfield who's a psychologist and a consultant I work with Dr Sabine Grundler they've been our local delirium leads as well as nationally uh, for, for Dr. Highfield, for example, and they have transformed delirium care hugely. I guess that humanization aspect for me, it's interesting to look back at the history of intensive care, in, and I think of it in three bits, really. Early on, and it's, it's interesting to remember, intensive care was born out of a viral pandemic, out of polio in, in 1952 in Copenhagen. And here we are today in another viral pandemic where ICU is important. But it was born really starting the outer science. And I guess people may have entered ICU because they were passionate about science and physiology and machines. And it was all about trying to get heart rates and oxygen and blood pressures within targets. And that was the basis. And then we realized that actually, even doing that doesn't always help patients survive. And so we moved into phase two, which was almost a survival precedent for ICU, you know, a binary yes, no. Did they survive? Did they not? And that's what all our trials were on. Did they survive? Did they not? 
And now I hope we are realizing more and more that survival isn't the only or the right metric. And we are now moving into phase three, which is survivorship. You know, seeing an empty bed used to be my follow-up. And having an empty bed meant, you know, on a Monday that that patient in bed three either died or survived. And I would go and have a look on the computer. Oh, yeah, they made it. They're on the ward. Brilliant. You know, that's not follow-up. And that's not humanization of ICU. Or that's not humanity. You know, that's a binary outcome. And so moving to the survivorship is, is what it's all about. And thankfully, trials are starting to do that. They're starting to look at patient-centered outcomes, delirium, quality of life scores, and return to work rates, and muscle strength, and psychological markers, all, all of those. So I think one part of humanizing the ICU has to be humanizing the very basis of what we aim for in the first place. So I guess that's one big way. And there's also lots of small, subtle ways. In fact, this week, later this week, I'm meeting uh, a patient who was a young, a young chap with severe COVID who needed to have ECMO, uh, needed to move to a centre in London from Cardiff. And I, I'm, I'm pleased to say he survived. And looking back at the notes for him before I meet him on Friday, we have some family update notes that we kept during COVID because we were speaking to people by phone. And I looked back on those family update notes and I've realised now for the first time that I did something very subtle, unconsciously. I wasn't thinking about this. And normally I would write my notes something like, I spoke to this patient's family today. I told them that they were critically ill, etc., etc." When I read back this patient's notes, I'd started them completely differently. And they started with, hi, David. And this was the chap's name. Hi, David. I spoke to your wife today. I could hear your daughter in the background. I told your wife that you were critically ill and that you were sick enough to die and that we were hoping to transfer you for specialist treatment in London. And I think through COVID and through that lack of family contact, something inside of me had made me write these notes to the patient rather than about them. And that's just a small, subtle thing. But I think as important as these big humanization tasks are those small, subtle things we do every day. Uh, going back to my brother-in-law, after visiting him, his parents asked, you know, what, what else should we do? Should we bring some clothes in? Should we do this or that and the other? And the only thing I suggested to them to do, again, wasn't medical. It wasn't, you know, speak to the doctor or the nurse. It was, please, can you get a photo of, of Neil uh, with his son, Ollie? And can you put that photo on the end of his bed? Because that will show the team looking after him, remind the team that you know, Neil's a guy just like all of us. He's a dad, he's a son, and he's not just somebody you know, in bed for with a neurological illness. So I think those subtle things are probably as important as the big things. Obviously, I have a, have a lot of opinions on delirium. It's, it's sort of, I don't want to say by it, field of interest because that sounds very academic but it's the thing I sort of bang on because of how I don't want to say poor because that's sort of inflammatory again it, it needed improvement and and I feel that, that it's something that I can contribute to and move forward but there's a lot of, 
a lot of sort of behaviors and things in ICU that, that are kind of commonplace that I think are sort of negative towards delirium. So things like talking over the patient and not to the patient. And even though perhaps patients in a coma telling them what, what you're doing, because just because you think I don't hear or they don't hear doesn't mean that they don't. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of stuff regarding like sleep and noise in ICU, trying to get as much sunlight to try and kick the circadian rhythm back into the the discussion and trying to reduce light at, at sort of night hours and um, like the noises of the machines because ICU is extremely noisy and it's a lot of the noise is at the patient's head. And I, I, I can't remember what the what the noise volume was, but eighty decibels sounds like a number I seem to remember. So imagine eighty decimal decibels worth of noise at your head. You're not gonna you're not gonna sleep any length of time. I seem to remember from conference in September. It's like the average is seven minutes a day for an ICU patient. So I don't I don't know how we expect them to to get better when you're essentially causing sleep deprivation before you you reply I'm just going to intercept you a minute there. Um, obviously, when I was at the European Delirium Conference training day in September, I was part of the Delphi coming up with sort of what were the most important topics for studies for for ICU delirium so and delirium. It's quite beneficial that those sort of studies that set out these are the things that must be in every study, these categories must be in every study, and that they are not just speaking to sort of the field academic experts and clinical experts, but also having people like me in it. Because in the end, it's people like me that knows what's most important post, what, what are the things that, that, that matter. Sure, surviving is important because if you don't survive, then every other discussion isn't important. But quality of life is is also as important because if you can't do most of what you did before, then you're going to be very bitter. You're going to be very angry. It's going to have massive effects on everyone in your life. And no, absolutely. And I, the thing I was going to say really is. It's great to say, let's focus on patient-related outcomes and what's important to patients. But to do that, we need to know what, are, what is important to patients and what they are. The James Lind Alliance in the UK is one that sets those research priorities as well. And you know, I'm, I'm really glad that they are now involving patients and peer members and, and lay members more and more. And that's you know, absolutely right. I think the conference thing is really interesting and you know there's been a trend over the last few years for more and more lived experience to be talked about there and I think that's that's a hugely positive thing I think also that being present in the underlying institutions the research institutions the colleges the royal colleges in training as well is a really important thing and I think in many ways intensive care is slightly later to that perhaps than other specialties because the concept of follow-up we are later to compared with other specialties you know the idea that in the past we didn't used to see people 
after they had spent months critically ill in intensive care and as soon as they've gone to the ward you know that that's it you know, that thinking about that now that's crazy uh, it's understandable why it was not because of bad people because of bad incentives you know there was it was not possible often to do that without physically going to the wards physically ringing people yourselves and now the intensive care standards in the uk the new gpic standards includes follow-up in there which which is fantastic i guess one question for you mark when we talk about things like patient what are important patient outcomes and involvement of patients in in committees and in conferences and in others what what do you think is the best way of asking and encouraging and supporting people to be involved in those things because i guess the people we want and would be most valuable there are people who were the most ill and people who may have been left with the most complicated outcomes actually so what do you think we could do better as a community to encourage ask and support people like that to be involved well i think there's many kind of aspects to this that yes the the sickest people may have lost insight i was very unwell there was many times my my family were told you've got to come in he's he's not going to make it to tomorrow um but i think it's very hard and that not not everyone that has been as unwell will be as willing to to speak about it and that i i am probably one of the most fortunate people to be in ICU uh, particularly with sepsis and ARDS and that the after effects physically of those issues are very little I have reduced sensation in my in my fingers um, but I still I still have them all and my toes I have some mild scarring at the top of my lungs but other than that not an awful lot so I am fortunate in that even though I was very unwell, that I was at the precipice, that it didn't have such long-term and deep effects to me. And not not everyone is comfortable talking about it. Some people just want to put it in a box, put it at the back, and kind of get on with their with their life. And that's that's fine. The reason why I I kind of speak at everything. I'm invited to is that that I am capable. I didn't start as a particularly great speaker, but I've sort of honed it slightly in, in, in how I deliver. But because I can, I, I feel that I should. And if people ask me and physically able to, then I will. As to like finding people, I'm a big fan of Twitter. I think Twitter is 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 an untapped resource of where you can where you can find people because if you if you search like i think even if you search like icu you you'll probably find somebody and if you if you don't find somebody there then you'll find somebody that knows somebody and there's certainly you know i can think of you know three people just sitting here other than me that would probably be quite willing and able to to help obviously alexandra uh, she spoke at the main conference. I spoke at the the training day. Uh, there's Rebecca who wrote a book, uh, Resus to Runner, um, and then there's Louise who does a blog on delirium. Uh, and if I remember, I'll put all of those in the 
in the description of this episode. If I don't, then I'll put them in the tweet. Um, but here, it comes down to how, how hard are you willing to look. But even if you take out that, take out social media, I can guarantee there'll be several people within your within your ICU, post-ICU pipeline that would be willing to. The, the thing that we need to remember is we can't just have patient because patient input is, is important, particularly in ICU, but the family are living that too. And it's not the same. Obviously, like my experience is very different from my parents. I was not cognizant of what was happening to me. My body was just interpreting the stimuli and trying to make rational interpretations of what what it was feeling, uh, the drowning, the green cut, and things like that. But they could see me, and they could see me waste me wasting away. And every time my eyes opened, the fear that was in my eyes because I was in a constant state of terror. Um, so that that has an effect. And as Kate said in the last episode, it's everybody here. It's not making sure the patient survives, making sure they have quality of life is very important. But once they get out of the hospital, which for me was 17 weeks after, they're going to need support that's not going to be provided by the hospital. It's going to be provided by their loved ones. So we also need to kind of make sure that they recover from it as well, because that's sort of things that are forgot about. We we do focus hard on the patient, and obviously, because that's that's the business of it. The, the patient is you're there to to save their life or to ensure the quality of their their life for what they have left. Um, if that's the the sort of going outcome, but. Yeah, the family, the family are not just on the sideline. They are very much involved, and they're very aware of what's going on. So they're even perhaps more profoundly affected psychologically than than the patient. I don't know what your view on that is. Absolutely, and that's one reason COVID has been so difficult because having those family there. It wasn't possible. And doing that over the phone is the next best thing, but it's not the same. I guess also, when thinking about follow-up, you also can't let the voices of those who have sadly died fade. And although our passion is saving lives and using treatments that may work, in my intensive care unit, around one in five patients will sadly die despite that. And I think that's not something in a way to shy away from. I think you know we should be excellent at dealing with that aspect as well as dealing with life. And the amount of bereavement support, not just for intensive care, but in the UK and in hospitals per se is, is, is very different and is very sporadic. And I wonder, you know, I mentioned Chris earlier, when I went back to meet Chris's family a decade after he had sadly died, knocking on their door was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. It was 10 years since their son had died, 10 years since I'd met them and him. Uh, and when they opened the door, that was so hard for them and so hard for me, actually. And it was clear, speaking to them, the impact upon their lives still, 10 years later, was massive. You know, Not only through work, through relationships, through 
Chris's friends, through through everything, really. And I wonder whether as much as we're now in the phase of following up survivors and trying to look at those aspects and help with families, I think the flip side of that is bereavement support as well for people who, who sadly can't or don't survive through intensive care. Uh, and at the minute, that's often provided by charities. There's a charity I've worked with locally that some proceeds the book go to support called To Wish Upon a Star, and they provide localised professional counselling and bereavement support for people who, who suddenly die. But that funding isn't integrated into the healthcare system, and you know that's maybe something in the future we need to explore even more. They are sometimes forgotten about because they're the they're the cases that have resolved as far as as the kind of medical or healthcare side has you know a, a firm outcome. But yeah, again, like in a lot of things, the family and the effects that has had on them is is kind of forgotten. But um, you know, I just want to say what one in five. So that's eighty percent of people make it out of ICU. That's to me, that's quite a a big brilliant number and obviously that's something we should kind of like celebrate because you know 80 percent's good good it's you know we would like to be better but you know that's the very very good number to me as a as a survivor you know um because prior to having been in i would have thought when you get into icu the majority of the time you would be passing away would would have been my interpretation of it so it's always good to see that we're far more successful than than is kind of perceived by society. I'd like to thank Dr. Morgan for being with me for this episode. And obviously this isn't the end of the discussion. In the next episode, you'll see the second half of the recording, uh, which I think is very good. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you did and you want to contact me, you can leave voice messages through the Anchor platform or you can tweet me or DM me at ICU underscore life or you can email me at icu.life.hand.recovery at gmail.com and I just hope you enjoyed it and thank you very much for listening.